This is Future Terms from Teach First, a half-termly panel event looking at the biggest issues facing schools in disadvantaged areas. Don't forget to subscribe to listen back to each event. But for now, enjoy the episode. Good afternoon, everyone, um, and a really warm welcome to the second of our Future Terms panel series. Um, I'm Greer Crawshaw, Director of School Leadership at Teach First. Um, so as of tomorrow, our pupils will have been outside of formal in-school schooling for coming up to 12 weeks. Um, on Monday, the school where my husband is a deputy head identified a pupil um, that needed a follow-up and, and a call with some parents um, from the engagement tracking that they'd been doing. So a meeting was set up um, and the mum had a chance to explain what, what was happening in her house, what things were like at home. The boy is eligible for pupil premium, he has special educational needs and his older sister who has ADHD has frequently been breaking lockdown rules causing the mum quite a lot of stress um, and she has been understandably more focused on the older sister. The mum herself admitted that she'd lost her own routine, she was staying up late worrying, she was waking up late, she's skipping meals. Um, and the school who's provided a Chromebook, um, which is being much used, but not for schoolwork um, by the boy. Um, and he's online until the small hours and not sleeping very well either. The school have been phoning regularly. They've provided hard copy and differentiated remote learning. And his regular TA has been sort of tailoring some of that work and also making contact. Um, but when mum sat down for an hour with her son earlier this week, he explained he simply couldn't remember how to do things. And he felt very angry when he tried to remember how to do things. This case isn't unique. And due to different combinations of individual needs, different family circumstances, this will have been replicated across the country in different ways. And for many pupils in primary and secondary, the current state continues for another four months at least. Um, there'll be children who've not been in the habit of being in school as we knew it for six months, if and when they return in September. And for others, a part-time offer is most likely what will continue for closer to a year. And whilst I have my own worries about my just turned five-year-old's ability to walk back through the school gates, whenever that may be, for many, the gap in face-to-face -face provision will come at a huge cost and the repercussions will be felt by teachers and leaders across the country who themselves have been operating outside of a physical school building and whose own routines will have changed dramatically in this time. September or January will in some ways be milestones, but the system's inability to concretely say when or how creates additional uncertainty for teachers, for leaders and for pupils and their families. Whilst pupils may be looking forward to a return, um, and for many pupils, the return will actually be unsettling, stressful. It might be welcomed, it might be unwelcome. And like the pupil at my husband's school, there'll be children who cannot remember how to engage with learning, how to do it, how to interact with one another and with teachers, how to be at school. And they might feel angry about this, but other children will have other, a range of emotions and it will manifest in different, different ways for different pupils. So the importance of a focus on re-engagement as part of school leaders thinking about recovery cannot be underestimated. And it must be one of the priorities that schools can and are supported to implement with focus and given the time and space to do so. The narrative around attainment gaps is important and the gap already significant has been tragically widened. But if this is overemphasized, then we risk losing sight of what needs to come before this um, and indeed will underpin any potential attainment progress in the longer term. So we hope that with our expert panel today, um, they will be able to share their thoughts and their plans and contribute to a wider discussion to support more teachers and leaders across the country plan for the future terms for their young people. We're recording today's panel to ensure that hundreds of others can engage with this content at the right time for them and for their schools. In terms of the format of this afternoon, I'll introduce each panelist by name and by organisation only because we want to spend time on their views and then you can find their biographies on the website page. I'll ask each of our experts to spend five minutes sharing their contribution on this topic. And during that time, as questions formulate, please start using the Q&A function on Zoom or the hashtag future terms panel on Twitter to pose your questions to us. It's unlikely we'll get through everybody's questions, but we know that the, the debate will continue on Twitter. So please do ask us those burning questions. So 
I'm going to hand over to the panel shortly um, and today we're delighted to be joined by Jenny Griffiths, Education Research Specialist here at Teach First, by Maria Gentles, Co-Director at Magic Behaviour Management, by Natalie Brookshaw, the Principal at Dixon's Trinity Chapel Town, and by Will Thompson, the Principal of Britain's Academy. Um, so Jenny, uh, Maria, Natalie and Will, you'll have five minutes each um, to start with and then when we get into questions I'll ask particular individuals to come in on certain topics um, and I will try and be ruthless in my timekeeping uh, to make sure that we really maximise the time that we all have together this afternoon. Um, so perhaps if I can start with Jenny um, and come to you first uh, for your input today. Hey, thank you, Gray, and uh, everybody for listening today. Um, I thought I'd approach it. There's so many things we could talk about today, and there's so much uncertainty at the moment around school openings, further openings, and, and when, and all that. So I, I wanted to try and tackle a few areas from a research point of view, that being uh, my, my job, to talk about how research might help us look at some of those questions. So I started with thinking about the purpose of school, and the chance we've got right now to really think about uh, the questions we want to ask. What are the things we might change when we go back? What are the values that we think are most important? Um, they're not questions for me to answer, but I think they're the questions that uh, lots of school leaders are asking right now. Um, so the first area I wanted to just touch on was this idea of the sense of belonging. That's the thing we've lost the most through lockdown, uh, increasing levels of isolation, not being able to mingle with our friends, both for staff and students and their families. So if we think about how we're going to rebuild schools as a community, thinking about the transition period for all students, this is not just about new reception students for year seven, year 12, but also all those students coming back in. Um, how we can make it safe and welcome. And I'm, I'm a great fan of Simon Sinek's uh, approach about the circle of safety and how we create that circle of safety where people feel safe, welcome, able to do their jobs well, able to learn well. Uh, the level of trust and autonomy that we can give teachers to get that done, the sort of language we use, ours, it's our school, it's, it's us, uh, working together with our staff, students and parents and the carers in the community. And the first areas we really thought about was habits. We've, we've mentioned students getting out of uh, good learning habits, uh, not sleeping at normal times, and those are all things they're going to have to relearn when they go back into school, but also the habits around learning. Uh, I was uh, looking at Duhigg's golden rule, talking about our cues and the habits and the rewards that help us uh, through life and those habits that we might need to change. And I think for me, the big takeaway there, and hopefully that you could share, is the idea of looking for those cues, being much more aware of our cues and our students' cues as teachers, um, how can we react to those cues differently to help them and how can we teach them to be aware of their cues around their learning, around their behaviour in the school. Um, and that, of course, links into motivation. That big question, I think, is going to be a big challenge when we come back to school. How do we motivate students to learn? We may find students who don't see the point anymore, who, can't, who, who perhaps have been affected by a lot of the economic changes that have taken place, by things that have happened in their family. How can we motivate them to learning? What is the why? And we've got a lot of traditional approaches around carrot and stick, which, you know, can become quite a transactional process of reward, uh, reward and punishment that actually the research is telling us doesn't work very well. It tends to narrow the focus uh, of what we're trying to achieve and what students are trying to achieve and gives us short term. So we really want to focus on that intrinsic motivation, how we can help students to find that the explanation, lots of, lots of teacher schools are very good at this, but explain the why. Why do we need to do this? What are you going to get out of it? But most importantly, also, how are they going to do it? Help them set the goals and the specific steps they can take to get there. So we're looking at things like metacognition, goal setting. And sort of the last area I thought of was, was rules. Now, this seems to be the place where a lot of people start. What are the rules we need to when we come back, perhaps around new hygiene requirements and behaviours, um, which, of course, are important. But I think they follow all these other things, these considerations about how we make the school a community, how we make people feel like they belong, because then we can explain the rules as being about supporting everybody. Uh, they support teachers, they support students and the welfare of everyone, keeping clear and simple. We know from research we've done at Teach First into successful schools that consistency is very important. And that doesn't mean the school's doing all the same thing. But it does mean about all the staff sharing the goals and the, the values that we put in place to keep everybody safe. Uh, I particularly like um, Mrs. Overidge's 
uh, in the right place at the right time doing the right thing. It's a very simple way of encapsulating a set of rules rather than a list of you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do that. If you do this, there's this function. And that's not to say there won't need to be sanctions perhaps, but thinking about how we model that for students, how we model behaviours we want, we're going to have to explicitly teach students what behaviours we want to see, and that includes the learning behaviours. Um, and a piece of work I read recently around low arousal techniques is really looking at peer influences. We know particularly teenagers are very, very responsive to their peers, perhaps more so than adults. And if we can look, work with those students who perhaps are the leaders, change their behaviour, that might have a greater impact. Um, so those are just some of the areas I've sort of been thinking about in terms of going back, uh, all around sort of building that whole child approach. They're looking at the self-esteem, the confidence, and how that feeds into their learning um, and helps them feel safe and welcome in that group. Thanks, Jenny. That's great. Um, I'm going to come to Maria next for your contribution today. Thanks. Thank you. Hi. Hello, everybody. Um, so I was previously um, head, head teacher of an outstanding pupil referral unit and SEMH provision. And the reason why I start with that is because what's really interesting to me is that a lot of the uh, comments that we're hearing and the discussions that we're hearing around preparing children to go back to school and how we can do that really resonate with me in regards to when we were thinking about children coming into the pupil referral unit and then preparing them and supporting them um, in regards to the development of the whole child. So that's their academic um, and their social emotional areas and then integrating them back into uh, mainstream school. And it's really interesting when I when I listen and join into to these discussions, because like I said, there's a huge overlap. And whilst it has been a really traumatic time for, for many, um, I think we can pull something out of this. I really feel that we can really begin to delve deeper into looking around children as a whole child, more so than we ever have before. And I think there's a few areas that I really want to touch on. So the first area is attachment. So we hear a lot of things around relationship building, um, which is all absolutely crucial. But I'm going to use the word attachment, because when we're thinking about the type of work that we're going to need to do to support the young people when they fully return to school, in order to be able to carry out these works, we need to be able to build secure attachments with the young people. And in order to do that, we're thinking about um, the boundaries, but we're also thinking about the nurturing side as well. So there's, there's often, I often have lots of discussions around the two separate areas. So it, it can be, right, let's have a think about what the school rules are going to be and how we're going to implement this and make children feel safe and secure in those, in those boundaries and rules. However, the other side of the coin is that I, I also hear, which is, right, how can we be completely nurturing of the understand their behaviours communication and what I often say is we need to bring it together so actually underpinning all of this will be the attachments it's the relationships that we build with the young people that will make us feel make them feel safe and secure and within those attachments we then build on that so the attachments are the foundation we then need to build in containment so we need to think about containment first of all within the environment within the actual school environment so how can we emotionally and physically contain the young people so that they feel safe and secure within the attachments that they've made, secure attachments, in order for them to be able to learn and to develop and to close the gaps? I think we also need to have a think about the language we use. Children and young people know that they have missed out on schooling, although they've been doing online learning the majority. There is um, a sense of fear almost um, within the the school community and within homes around you know have we done well enough as parents at home supporting our children etc and I think it's really important that we think about the language that we use with the young people it's not about catching up they've done really really well at home already I think we need to start from the point of when they return to school and we just call it learning we just call it learning um, because if we as soon as we say the word catching up it puts an immediate pressure 
on the young person and the, the, the team around the child supporting those young people. So I think that's something that we could really think about the language we use. So we've got the attachment, building the, the containment, so that's the emotional and physical containment and thinking about the language that we use as well. I think what's also important is to have a balance around, um, around thinking about how we're developing the whole child and raising their or, or supporting their academic um, learning as well. Uh, I really think that sometimes um, we can accidentally miss the mark when we talk about let's just focus solely on um, developing the young person um, and nurturing the young person and actually putting the academics completely to the side. People often used to say to me when we had children coming into the, the pupil referral unit and SEMH provision and we had young people who were two, three, four years behind academically and they used to say, how do you do it? How do you raise their attainment? Not quite in line with their national peers, but so the year sixes, for example, were still able to take their SATs. How do you do that? And I would also always, always say it's a perfect balance of the nurture, the containment, the attachment, and actually continuing with the academic side of things as well. Because actually with young people, it's really important that they feel that they can achieve. It's really important that they know what they're working for. They know what they're working towards. Um, and so I think it's a real fine balance between the two, which can be really hard to do. And it's not, um, you know, ignoring the nurturing side or, or putting more emphasis on the other. It's a balance of both. And I really wanted to stress that today. That was my main point that I really wanted to stress today. And finally, um, I just wanted to talk about um, the, the team around the child. So the adults working with the young people. Obviously, and of course, we're thinking about the young people and they're the centre of, of our, our topic of discussion. However, I think it's very important that we don't forget ourselves. We have also been through a very difficult time. The, the teachers teaching the, the young people, the support staff and anyone else in the school, they have had families at home or maybe unfortunately have had some tragedies during this period of time. And it's very important that we look after each other in order to look after the young people. And we mustn't forget that in our discussions around supporting the young people when they return back to school. Thank you so much. Um, that's great. And actually some of the future panels um, that we've got coming up will, will address some of those points in, in even more detail. So great to have your reflections there. Um, Natalie, can I come to you next, please? Thank you, Greya. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm, I'm sure you'll agree that preparing students for their new normal is a significant challenge for, for all school leaders. Um, I know that I've been incredibly humbled by, by all of the work that has been undertaken since schools were closed to most students. Um, and it has been and continues to be a, a Sisyphean task. Um, and of course, you know, we still face a huge degree of uncertainty um, about what will happen in the autumn term. You know, what will schools look like? how will they operate, how many children will we be open for, um, and, and it's such a huge unknown and, and that's really just the tip of the iceberg in terms of questions that we're thinking about. Um, and, and just to give you a little bit of an overview of my school's context, I, I lead an all through school in Chapel Town, which is located in inner city Leeds, um, and we serve an area where there is income, employment and education deprivation. Um, and I know devastatingly as a result of this pandemic, unfortunately, the levels of, of socioeconomic deprivation will have only increased. Um, and if you think about prior to lockdown, um, over half of our, our children were disadvantaged. We had a significant high proportion of vulnerable children and families, all of whom will have experienced lockdown very, very differently, um, whether that's through trauma in the home, um, a tragedy, a bereavement, or the loss of any form of structure or routine can actually significantly affect um, a child's mental health. So I think personally, my view on the topic of how to prepare students for their new normal is whatever that may look like in the autumn term, it's not simply about getting students through the door and beginning the process of, of, of catch up of, of lost learning time or, or trying to close gaps in the curriculum. And obviously, whilst that's clearly important and, and obviously rescue packages will be put in place, I'm sure, by many schools and many leaders, I think the immediate focus has to be on the socialisation of students um, and re-inducting them back into a highly structured environment so that they can feel safe um, and they can thrive at school. 
Um, and I'm sure all children will be longing for routine and consistency. Um, but we can't just expect them automatically to, to walk through the doors again and to begin that formal learning when they've been out of that formal learning structure or environment um, for, for a number of months. You know, we need to help and support them to be able to do that um, by, by putting, you know, structures in, in place for them. So I think, in my opinion, we've got to provide an extensive programme of, of reinduction or reorientation. Um, and, and this is something that's not new to us. This is something that we've always done um, at our school since we opened just, just three years ago. Um, and we do reinduction multiple times a year, not just at the beginning of term. Um, and it's something we do with staff and something we do with, with, with all of our children. And we will, in fact, need to devote even more time to this, given our schools may look very different in terms of how we operate. Um, and so what we're planning on doing is having a week long period of reinduction, which will serve to create real clarity around routines. Um, we operate a very routines driven environment and also our expectations in order to create those strong social norms in our school, which is absolutely critical for, for all of our children to succeed. Um, so just to give you a few examples of what that might look like. Um, it starts with the senior leadership team and the senior leaders will spend time with every single year group explaining how the school operates um, practicing entering a classroom um, and how to exit a classroom, how to disseminate resources within, within the classroom, how the children transition from one part of the building to the next, or, or it might be how to talk purposefully with your partner, uh, how to be kind and show that kindness, um, and also how, how children manage themselves in different parts of the building, because each part of the building has a different social norm. And to support staff and create that consistency, which is absolutely key, we create what we call microscripts, um, which we now call what to do's for every aspect um, of our school day and every, and every routine that we have so that everybody understands that minutiae of, of how the school operates. Um, and, and therefore that process of reinduction would enable us to have a really strong and tangible culture because we've taken the time to explain what, why we do what we do with the children so that they understand the bigger picture and I think that's really important that they understand the why and importantly, they understand the purpose and that it's about purpose rather than power, which is absolutely essential when we're thinking about building really strong relationships with, with our children. And now more than ever, um, we have to spend time reconnecting children to their learning and, and their learning environment to ensure positive educational outcomes for all. Um, and having those clear and precise and consistent routines for all, where the expectation is that every single child can succeed and meet those expectations is really important. And when we think about our most vulnerable children, actually having consistency in a school reduces that cognitive load for, for our most vulnerable. So codifying that culture is going to be key. Um, and, and to use a term from, from Peter Drucker, um, we absolutely believe culture eats, eats strategy for breakfast. And, you know, creating, creating that clarity um, is, is going to be re really key for, 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 for us when we all go back. And so I think, you know, my, my final comment is that this is a great opportunity for us to reinduct our children to the culture we want in our schools. We've all got a culture in our school, whether we like that culture or not. Um, and it's about now really reflecting on that culture. Are we happy with that culture? And taking the time now, putting curriculum to one side, for a few days to really focus on building relationships which are grounded in mutual trust um, and respect because without a strong culture, a curriculum, no matter how great it appears in design, will always be squandered. So I think it's, it's really important that that culture comes first um, so that children feel really comfortable with the social norms of being back in a school again. Thanks very much, Natalie. And, um actually really really clear alignment between Jenny and, and Maria and Natalie at this point. Thank you very much. Um, Will, can you come in please? Uh, gladly, thank you. Uh, good afternoon everyone. I think the dangers in schools we often focus on what we don't do well rather than what we do do well. When you observe a lesson with a teacher you ask them what was good and they really struggle and when you ask them what would you do better they come up with a whole list of things. So I think it's important to think as educators what have we done well over this period and I think as a system, we've done superbly with remote learning. My school, you know, as all Teach First schools, deprived area of everything else. 
homework is something that's there, they do it and it's, um, it's not the, the key that makes our students successful or makes them attain well, it's an add-on. Now suddenly it's become the most important thing and we've gone through an evolution, a revolution to try to make that as good as it can. Obviously, I think all the time we're trying to react to the situation, so the lockdown comes in, just get work on there. Then over Easter we assessed that it wasn't good enough, so we got assessments in there, and then taking feedback from parents, it was too much of it, so now we've gone to a very structured system. But it's that constant evolution, but also listening to advice and thinking a little bit creatively. I fear that come September that will become important still. So obviously, you know, we're using this time to try to make it better. I think the big issue for all of our schools is that digital divide. Um, we have now know who hasn't got devices, who hasn't got access to Wi-Fi and everything else, and we're printing off about a third, well, over a third of our students have a work pack every week. They collect, they deliver, they um, you know, they post. Uh, I took three packages this afternoon. You know, it's, it's a mammoth operation, but to try to make sure that gap isn't even worse. I think a big one that we weren't possibly aware of is how much that some of our students are literally are not eating. Um, we have done, the, obviously not all schools, the voucher system, but also the parcels, not just for our pupil premium students, because we've come across more and more cases where the students literally do not have anything to eat. And so even if it's not pupil premium, we're still obviously coming with the voucher, we're giving them a food parcel each week. Um, and that's been, you always know it's there, but I think it's been in your face. Um, I deliver the food parcels on Monday, and I think some of the other stores, it's been quite salutary for me. I think I'm, you know, I'm a long, an old man, I've seen a lot of education, but I'll go to one flat, and it's a two-bedroom flat. Clearly, there are seven people living in it. The oldest boy is in my year seven, and there are, he's got three younger brothers and sisters. The two girls are under five, lovely girls, but obviously, you know, how on earth is he going to work? There's three adults in there. He's got no chance of doing it. I deliver food for him, I deliver work pack for him, but I really do worry when he comes back, how much will he be able to learn? He's, he, he wants to learn, but will he have that opportunity? Like all schools, we've done welfare calls. I think, you know, a lot of the other panellists have picked up on this, the balance between the, the holistic approach, but also the education. And they've been vital. You know, we've done home visits to make sure that every student is okay if we're not getting through on the phone um, to, to try to make that. I think the other thing we've done, as all schools have, is try to be reactive to different situations, things that you possibly haven't thought about at the beginning suddenly become important. Um, after the, about two weeks into the last half term, we suddenly became aware of a lot of our girls did not have sanitary products. They'd relied on us for all their time to get them, and suddenly they hadn't got them. So we've tried to deal with that. Um, we had a case this week, and I think sort of these things will unfortunately reveal more and more. Um, a, a student, a lot of time on their hands, people talked about wrong hours. Um, very attractive year 10, she's been groomed by an older man, and the suspicion is the possibility that she's pregnant. And I think to try to balance all that up it, it is going to be an absolute minefield for us. I think the challenges we've got, I think if we acknowledge them, it, it possibly sets us up better to realise what we need to do. I think the government did a superb job in scaring people and it's well researched that the less educated are more scared but I've got students who have not left their house flat whatever but also some that will not have their windows open because they're scared the virus will come in. We have somehow got to get those students in. Other colleagues on the panel have mentioned the hours, you know, we start at 8.20, most kids aren't getting up to 1.20. We've got to try somehow to address that to get them back into learning normally again. I've mentioned it before, but I think that divide is going to be absolutely massive because in all schools, we're going to have some of our students who come back who will be more independent. They'll be more resilient. They'll be more educated. They've actually developed as learners. Well, I suppose a bit worrying for us without our influence there in front of them, but they've actually flown under this system and will be having students who probably have done very little, if anything at all. And I think that is a huge challenge for us. I think child protection and issues that come out, we've got to be prepared for that. Those who's in education know the weeks leading up to the six weeks holiday, the worst time for a lot of students um, with the anxiety for them. They're not going to see us. We're the security for them and they're not going to see us for six weeks. I dread when we come back and it's going to be 22 weeks if you know we're looking in September, what that will look like for us as a staff to support the students. One of the other panellists talked about looking after ourselves. I think staff are a big part of that and obviously being flexible again. 
Um, I have rotors like all schools do, but I've actually got staff who ask to be on the rotor weekly because it gives them that structure they need. Others are loving it, but it's just trying to individualise it and personalise it to, to make sure it's the right thing. Other panellists I mentioned, as I said, the difficulty going last, I think those routines are going to be very, very hard to implement. But if we're aware it's a challenge, we're thinking it's a challenge, at least we're prepared for it. It's not just the routines they were used to, there'll be new routines. And a lot of schools, we inhabit a grey world, we inhabit quite a messy world. And so we're saying now, if you're late, you will not be admitted. Because obviously the new system makes it very complex, someone entering into the buildings, when our year 10s come in next week, that's what we're saying. But logically we have to be flexible within that. So I think it's the awareness of what we need to do, but also that willingness to change. I think fundamentally, though, we've got to go back to what, why we're doing what we're doing. Whenever I see teachers starting their career, I would just say one piece of advice. If you're fair, you care, and you're consistent, you'll be fine. Injustice is something that everyone rails against, staff or students. Kids are like dogs. They sent you if you don't care, and you've got to be consistent. So I think whatever you, we do, we've got to look in that. I think we've got to lead all of us, and this will be teachers support staff everyone the role we're going to lead with empathy but also with humility we don't have all the answers we aren't the experts we are trying to do our best and to be aware of that as ever i think we've got to show calm responses not emotional responses but we have to be responsive i was challenged by my chair of governors to be strategic and it's very hard at the moment but we still need to think strategically about our students education and their welfare I think personally, the biggest thing we've got to be for our young people and for our staff, though, is optimistic. We've got to hope, you know, they are, you know, that their future is ahead of them. We can't have them thinking it's bleak and it's blank and there's nothing then for them, even more than normal. I strongly believe we've got to be the voice saying, you know, there is something for you. You know, if you work and if you're, if you're good, a good person, you will do well. Thank you. Thanks, Will, um, and thanks to all the panellists. I think some themes that are coming through before we jump into the discussion is the importance of this sense of belonging for pupils and and for, for staff, um, that we can reteach people habits, re-socialise, re-induct, um, but do that with also a focus on the progress they can make um, and the, the ability to kind of to be successful academically and to be successful in the future. Um, making them feel safe through attachment and containment and an importance on not going into the deficit, deficit language about what they've missed out or they need to catch up on um, and kind of the deficit language of what we haven't been able to do as an education system, but actually celebrating what we have been able to do at such short notice um, and, and in quite quite such such difficult circumstances. Um, focusing on the whole child, um, really thinking about sort of staffing and personalising the way that we're thinking about schooling to, to suit the staff that are supporting our pupils as well. Um, and bringing it back to the purpose and to, to why, why we're in education, why pupils are coming to school so they have that hope about the future. Um, and I think some interesting um, kind of debate there about the strategic versus the immediate or the strategic versus culture from both Will and Natalie um, and how to kind of phase and prioritise and, and get that thinking right um, at a senior leadership level. So I'm going to um, jump into uh, the questions which, which are coming through, L lots of really interesting ones, so, so thanks very much, keep them coming. Um, the first question, and Natalie, I'm going to come to you on this one, but then others, please feel free to jump in. So we'll kind of go with somebody leading on the answer and then uh, others chipping in. Um, so the first question then, Natalie, is how will a focus on re-socialisation that students have to go through impact curricula and assessment completion? do you see one as being at the expense of another? I think it's really important when, you, when we're thinking about codifying our culture to have really high expectations for, for every single child. And I think without that focus on routines and reinduction, um, then it's really difficult to, to, for, for, for teachers and for children to ensure that they're, they're, that the children are aligned and, and believe they have those high expectations. So I think it's absolutely critical that we start with those routines, we explain the reason why we're doing what we're doing so that it supports with those high expectations um, and, and also will support keeping children's aspirations on track. And we know that our young, young people really do benefit from um, and, and understand 
when a, a member of staff or a senior leader or a teacher explains the purpose and over-rationalizes why, why we do what we do. And I think it's that over-rationalization, which in turn will lead the children and staff to continue to have those really, really high expectations that every single child can achieve. So I see them very much as, as going hand in hand. Um, but I think unless you've got that consistency of routine and consistency of expectation with every single member of staff, it's very, very difficult to onboard all of the children um, without that strong culture, which obviously starts with, with a mission and, and then values which underpin that mission and, and values which are therefore also tangible across the school. Thank you, Natalie. Um, Marie or Jenny or Will, let me know if you want to jump in on that one. I, I think I'll just add a bit to it because I, I agree with what Natalie said. I think that you don't need to separate the two things out. I think when we look at motivation, particularly of, of you know, how do we actually get children to be motivated to aspire to, to meet those expectations, we need to get to that point of what, do they actually believe in themselves? Do they believe they can achieve it? And what we know about belief is it really is a team effort. It's not an individual thing. It's very hard for anybody to achieve something off their own back without that support of other people around them. And that's very much about, you know, the positive regard of the teachers who are instilling that belief and encouraging them, but also about their peers. And you, we've all met those students who, you know, their, their whole reward centre is around peer adulation, peer respect. And if that culture for peer respect is about messing about in class or something like that, then they're not going to succeed. Whereas if we can shift that culture towards where the positive regard comes from, the trying hard, the being prepared to share questions, share answers and not be embarrassed by it then you know, that's, that's where we can get that culture working together so that all children can succeed together. That's why, you know, I love this idea of induction um, about staff being part of this as well. If, if staff aren't consistent in the way they speak to students about expectations, about beliefs and about all that motivation, then the children don't believe it because they're hearing different things in different places and they're getting different messages. So they just revert to what we know. Everybody reverts to habits. You know, teenagers like to sleep in late. We know that if we let them do it, they revert to it. So they've had a few weeks, a few months off school. They're reverting to that habit. And so like Will was saying, we need to, you know, find ways to bring them back into the, into the positive learning habits. It's nice to add in there as well. I think now more than ever, it's really crucial that we have um, a deeper understanding of behaviour as communication as well. Um, because if we have young people, and we will, who who are um, acting out uh, because they're anxious or nervous and it, it obviously it, it shows up in the classroom in a certain way um, I think now more than ever we have to be really really conscious of um, everything that's already been said but equally what is that young person communicating to us through their behavior so that yes absolutely they may be a sanction or a consequence but equally there needs to be an understanding of oh my goodness, actually, they're really, really anxious. They're really nervous after everything that's happened. How do we then meet that need in that young person? So I just wanted to add that on to, in a full agreement with what's already been said, but that's just in addition to. I think that goes back to some things we said earlier about that communication, communication of the why. I think you're right. It's like to reduce anxiety, if we can explain what the plan is and how we're going to achieve something. Like this is, this is what we've got left of the course to follow uh, by this date. And this is how we're going to do it. That makes it much more manageable for students to, to address it. Okay, so it is possible. And it's, again, it's all about that sort of, you're right, instilling the belief, reducing the anxiety because it becomes predictable. Okay, we're going to do this at this point and looking at specific barriers or specific thing, challenges that are stopping students from doing that. You know, why do they not think they can achieve it? What are the specific things? And it might be a, a very tangible thing like Will was pointing out, you know, they don't have the resources, they don't have the tech access at home they don't have somewhere to work that's quiet um, it, and it could be it could be more intangible things um, but I think you know we can help them do that and we can help them set that out just building on what you said Jenny as well I think you know part of those reinduction sessions need to be around this idea of well how do we build that intrinsic motivation um, you know we have three drivers at our school mastery autonomy and purpose and and we talk to the children about those those three drivers to get them to understand the bigger picture of well they're at school not to get a prize or necessarily a reward they're at school to, to give them a, a great life chance and, and for them to get to university or, or a real alternative and I think again it's about that positive language that we're using with the children but over communicating that on a daily basis 
um, multiple times. So it's, it's not just an ad hoc assembly. They're actually getting fed that, that language, which is part of the culture every, every single day by senior leaders and also by staff. Thanks very much. Um, second question, which I think is, is quite linked, but provides a nice kind of follow on. Um, and I'll come to you, Marie, on this one. In the first instance, how can we support students who, who feel that they are behind, particularly those who are coming back having struggled to complete um, much of the work that's been set to them during the lockdown period? I think the first thing we, I said it earlier and I'll say it again, I think one of the things that we need to be really conscious of is the language that we use with the young people. Young people, are so, as we know, um, they're so aware of where they are in comparison to their peers. Um, and even now, more than ever, coming back to school, uh, children know, they know if, if there's a child at home who hasn't been able to have the same access to their learning um, as one of their peers, when they go back to school, they know, they know that they're going to be technically a bit further behind. So I think the first thing is addressing the language we use. We're all starting from where we're starting from. It's not about a comparison from one child to the other. Um, and then I think it's just from there building on that. So again, it goes back to, um, I believe what I said earlier in regards to building on their confidence, forming those secure attachments with them. Because once we form those secure attachments with them, then we can also support the academic side. Because if they do feel nervous, anxious, embarrassed even, because of those secure attachments that we formed with them, because of our understanding of behaviour as, as communication and because of our understanding around how to contain young people, we can then support them gently through to push through uh, their anxieties, their feelings of falling behind um, and everything else to gently um, begin to support them to to recognize their own worth and know that they can do they're just starting from wherever they're starting from when they go back to school and that's okay and we're all going to build on that together and Thanks, I, you know, I completely agree with what uh, Marie's just said I think it's about the language we are using and that language of reassurance and I know from all of the well-being calls that, that we've been doing so many children are anxious so many children have said I'm worried about falling behind because they don't know what their peers are doing um, so it, it's not using um, that deficit language when we go back and and also importantly not you know getting in you know not getting bogged down in assessment or anything like that it's a case of what's really important that the children are back in the classroom back in that environment and getting them to fall back in love with learning which if we get them to do that then that's only going to help build those strong relationships thanks natalie um well i'm going to come to you for the next question and then others feel free to chip in um so Will, do you think there's a case for redoing the academic year at a policy level going forwards? Um, I think concerns from this particular audience member that it will be impossible to complete the 18 months content in a 12 month period. I think um, that's a very valid point. Personally, I wouldn't uh, approve it. I wouldn't think there's a good idea, but I think it's something that is definitely worth thinking about because effectively the students have lost six months of their time. I think I'd rather look at other strategies whereby they continued to progress where they are, but obviously with acknowledgement that they haven't missed six months of their learning. I think again, the other panelists very, you know, very sensibly and very uh, acutely have talked about language. I think the idea of starting again, redoing, it's not a positive message to me. I'd much rather they went forward, um, picking up, you know, what have they done? Where are you? How can we support you to go forward? Um, I think to me, picking up the other panellists, I said, I think it's almost that the learning that's happened during the, this period is where we start. And there's no sort of blaming as to where you are on it. But students will need to recapitulate if they have done it, but equally well to start from there and then build forward, not go straight into new topics, assuming they've covered those. But personally, and this is a personal opinion, I don't think the idea of repeating a year is a good one personally. Thanks, Will. Anybody else want to jump in on that one? Yeah, I think, I think I agree with Will. I think getting children to repeat a year could possibly demotivate children. And I, I think we do have to put some kind of rescue package in place. Um, but that's really sort of middle leaders and senior leaders thinking about, you know, that end goal and, and then, you know, planning to try to cover what's been lost within, within that time frame. But, you know, I definitely agree that, that repeating a year, I think, would be quite damaging for, for some of our children. 
can I just say here that mm. I think it's, I agree with everything that's been said. And just in addition, it's amazing what you can do in regards to supporting children's academic learning when you really are able to, to nurture the rest of that child, when you are able to build their confidence, uh, push them out of their comfort zone gently and safely and securely um, and build up all of those other areas, their learning will come as, a, as, as almost like complementary to that. It's amazing what you can do. Like I said, you know, I've worked with young people who are literally three or four years behind um, and within, um, they used to come to us for an intervention. So sometimes within a 20 week period, um, the, the amount of learning that, that was able to be done during that period of time was just, it was just amazing. Um, so I think that in agreements with what everyone else has already said, you know, it's really, refocusing on developing that whole child and actually you'll you'll see naturally the the positive impact that that has on their learning thanks marie and it, it sounds like there's an opportunity for the wider system to learn from some of the practice in ap settings in terms of um induction um, and reintegration so i think that's a, a really exciting opportunity um jenny i'm going to come to you with a question now that others then may well jump in on um, how would you advise teachers and school leaders to begin to reconnect with colleagues and resume positive relationships with pupils potentially before physically returning to school, so in virtual formats? Uh, having had, spoken to a number of teachers about this, I think we have to recognise that everybody's in a different situation right now and what works for one school or one group of teachers may not be appropriate for another. So. Um, in, I know some teachers are calling students, others are doing Zoom meetups, but you know, it doesn't work for everyone. It doesn't work for students that haven't got access to the right technology or internet connections. It doesn't work if, if teachers are not in the sort of home environment themselves that enables that. Maybe they're you know, in a house share or they've got young children themselves. So I don't think we should make any assumptions about the best way to do it. I think you know, that we, we can, can communicate in all sorts of ways, whether it's through email sent postcards oh no no my daughter's school had done little videos that are, you know therefore publicly available it's not about one-to-one -one, but it just keeps them part of that sense of belonging you know and it's it's how can we just keep that connection going reaching out to those most vulnerable um i think for teachers coming back it's more about thinking about all those th bringing all those things together in that culture of the school when we can I think, you know, those of us who've been on maternity leave will know that you get that fear after being away from school for nine months, a year of uh, I've forgotten how to teach. I won't know how to talk to children. Uh, I won't have any relationship with them. And in fact, that's never the case. It all sort of slots into place. People, you know, children are very adaptable. People are adaptable. They want to be connected. You know, there'll be a few students for whom that's more challenging, but actually they want that connection. They're, you know, they're desperate for it. My daughter leapt back into school she skipped through the door you know all those anxieties sort of not quite all melted away but I think they did I think for teachers it's the same thing it's that anxiety about how am I going to make this work it's all different and actually I think we probably are worrying more than we need to I think we can go back to all those things we've done before thinking about the positive language you know how do we talk to students how do we encourage them how do we motivate them um, and we know how to do that teachers know how to do that I've, I've got absolute confidence in teachers doing that Thanks, Jenny. I think um, I think reinduction, part reinduction for staff as well, would also help reduce that anxiety before the children come back. And if possible, you know, considering having, you know, one or two, three days, um, you know, before that, before the start of that autumn term, um, to really support staff to get back into that environment where, um, where, where particularly our NQTs who, you know, have only had a third of their NQT year. Um, will need even more support. So I think it's looking at a package of support, not only for the children, um, but also for staff as well for, uh, when we go back to our new normal. Thanks, Natalie. Um, a question that I'm going to come to Will on first. Um, so when pupils return in autumn, not only will schools be adapting to new normal due to COVID-19, but also responding to the impact of the Black Lives Matter movement. How should schools prepare for a positive culture that makes pupils and staff in our BME ME community feel supported as well as dealing with the effects of COVID-19? I think it's a, a very good question. I think one that leaders have um, been tackling uh, currently, obviously the events, uh, tragic events um, in America, all of us with uh, black staff and you know a significant portion of black students who are trying to respond now, obviously trying to pick up the right messages um, around injustice, 
and that in fact it is totally wrong, but also you know trying to get them to articulate that and do it in a positive way. So like most schools, we've done assemblies. Um, our PSHE work for next week is focused around it. This, and then the history department's looking at it from the historical context. So trying to get students to understand why it's wrong, but equally well, their voice is, is important and they should stand up for injustice. But I think also we have to be very aware that we, you know, obviously, you know, I think all of us saw at the scene of the weekend worried, particularly the black community, being more prone to COVID. Social distancing wasn't adhered to, but then nor was on South End Beach. But I just think it's trying to get students to be aware of that they do have a voice. They are, you know, that they should see injustice, but just to, to, to articulate that in a safe environment. I think the other one is, and, and it's you know, it's a very good challenge as a white leader, I'd be very interested to hear Marie's views on this, I think we have to be very sensitive because we don't know what it's like, so we can't make assumptions that we haven't felt this. Um, you know, we've had other injustices in our lives, but not that just you know purely on the colour of our skin. So I think it's trying to, to listen to what the students are thinking, feeling, saying, but also the staff. Um, I've got two or three very strong, very powerful black leaders in the school and they I always go to them because I think uh, uh, it's a personal thing I'm always very aware of as an old white man saying what we should be doing because I don't think that's right it's just perpetuating the injustice that's happened before but I th we do personally I do think it's you know it's vital it's wrong we've got to address it thanks Will yeah I just want to say that um, I just think we just need to be transparent and open and just to recognize that sometimes times we it doesn't matter what topic we're talking about to just move through um which may be for some an uncomfortable feeling or whatever it may be and just communicate to each other um with each other sorry um and just and just talk and work through it that way because every school community will be slightly different um and every school community knows their community and, ha and knows their staff and their young people but i just think the the main thing is to be transparent and open um, and and not to ignore or kind of put to the side if we feel uncomfortable or not quite sure how we how we deal with it. There's always someone we can turn to or for support or advice. Thanks, Marie. I'm going to move us on to um, time is flying. So what I think will probably be the last question, but I actually want each panelist to um, give a response to this. Probably quite a brief response. Um, so I'll pose the question, let you have a think, and then come to each of you in turn. So the question is, has considering the new normal um, led you to question any particular aspect of our current education system? And actually, what do you think should change now? I don't mind going first. Great, Marie's ready, <laughs> perfect. <laughs> Thanks. Um, only because it's something I've really been thinking about. Mm. Um, well, I'm sure we all have actually, to be fair. Um, and I, I suppose part of it's about what, what, how we feel personally that impacts on us professionally as well. Um, and so for me, I'll be very brief. Um, I feel like now's a time more than ever for us to have, to, to develop a deeper understanding of behaviours communication, of attachment, of attainment, of attachment and containment, sorry, and how all that um, has a, a relationship with attainment and what that looks like. And, but really look deeply into it, not just on surface level. So um, I know I have to be brief, so I'll stop there. Uh, but that's what I would say to that. That's great. Thank you. Um, Jenny, I'll come to you next. Oh, so difficult. Um, I think the thing that sticks out for me the most at the moment, um, in, in a context of you know, difficulty in recruiting teachers and retaining teachers is how amazingly teachers and leaders have stepped up in the situation. But also they sort of started off as, you know, heroes feeding children, doing everything they can possibly do. And then overnight it can turn into why aren't teachers doing X? Why haven't they solved this problem? Why can't our children go back to school? And um, it's like teachers can't win. So for me, I think the big thing is let's let's think about what, you know, how much we value education. And that's, you know, how can we really develop teaching as a profession and you know somehow enable it to have the respect it deserves and give teachers the respect they deserve and the autonomy and trust i think that they they deserve and they, they've demonstrated you know that, that they deserve it so much so that for me is the big thing thanks jenny uh natalie next yeah i think a really really difficult question um but i think this situation and, and this pandemic has, has given us a real opportunity for it almost to act as a springboard for us to get to know our communities better and then the communities that we serve within, within our school. 
you know, I know from, from doing, you know, home visits, wellbeing phone calls, that there's so much we can do now as a school, um, you know, to be a true community school. And, and it's about now really looking at what the needs of our community are so that we can support them. Because I think if we can support our community even further, then that's ultimately going to help build those relationships and um, with the children who are coming to us from early years all the way through uh, to year 11. So I think absolutely the, the focus and the priority for us as a school is thinking about that wider community and, and what impact what positive impact and, and working together with the community i think is really important thank you um unlike the uh, contestants mine's a personal one but a one i think is injustice i think my current school is i came here um in 2018 the results were in the bottoms seven and eight percent for progress eight last year we made significant improvement the year 11s worked really hard. We are predicting significant improvement, but they're going on what their predecessors have done. And I just don't see that as fair or just, if, you know, I, I see they've got to look to a measure, but it just seems a very blunt measure without any address to explain a context, looking at trends and the idea that, that you're, you are what you've always been. Well, why do we work in disadvantaged schools? Why are we working in challenging places? If it's just they're going to replicate the same results. So while I am ever optimistic, that's the one I think that I still am struggling with. And I think in August it will be very hard facing students who you know deserve a lot better than they got. And all it is purely the past performance has nothing to do with them, what the kids did previously. Thanks. Um, really interesting insights there. And I, I'll, I'll add one that I've been reflecting on um, as someone who works in an organisation where we do a lot of virtual work and collaboration just to see how quickly schools shifted and realised that actually they could, if they had to, exist virtually and more flexibly and the extent to which come September or January um, a greater degree of, of flexibility for staff to not have to be present and on site every day for things to work in the right way and obviously with small groups and bubbles that will be really challenging but I think schools have proved that that it is possible um, and there could well be a, a, a legacy of that, that that means staffing and what it means to be part of a school um, could well start to look different over time. Um, I'm going to squeeze one more question in because I'm going to eke every every ounce of expertise out of these last three minutes. Um, so a question to do with parental engagement and fears that parents may have about their children returning to school um, because fears of the virus still exist. And, and Will, you mentioned sort of uh, children and families who've been unwilling to kind of open their windows because of a fear of the virus. So how do we help people overcome their fear of the virus and help them feel that it is safe. And I guess, Natalie and Will, how, how are you starting to do that in your schools? So we've started to do that through, um, well, because we've, we've opened for, for early years and, and year one, um, and we've, we've had about 30% about of children coming back um, from those two year groups. But I know because we're such a close knit community that next week, We've got about 50% of children coming back. So I think it's about showing families and, 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 and explaining to parents really, really clearly what we're doing and what we're putting in place to support their child. So we've sent letters home. Um, we've also done video conferencing um, and, and talk to them and, 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 and try to be as transparent as possible and give them, give them that forum to ask questions um, and, and, and for us to be able to answer them as, as candidly as possible. So I do think once we've, and, and, and hopefully once the, the, the families see that their child has been successful at school, they see their child coming back home from school and absolutely having a fantastic time and a fantastic day, that more and more families will start that process of, of, of bringing their child back because they feel safe with the measures we've put in place. And obviously you cannot mitigate for every single risk and there will always be risk in everything you do. But I do think it's about the more communication you have with families um, and the more contact you have with families, um, the more that they trust what you're doing and, and therefore will, will trust you to, you know, to, to look after their child and, and, and protect them in terms of their well-being, but also their safety. Thanks. Thanks, Natalie. And in one minute, if you can, Will, um, what are you or are you planning to do to help parents and pupils overcome that, that fear and that anxiety? I think very much as Natalie said, it's just being, and Marie touched on, I think it's that being transparent and honest and saying, you know, there is a risk, but it's, you know, we are doing everything we can to mitigate it. Obviously trying to articulate that as many different ways 
um, the other big one we're doing is a lot of outreach work. So we're doing a lot of home visits, a lot of, and I think then they see that we're in the community. We are not fearing, you know, yes, we have our own anxieties, but realistically, you know, we can see the importance of it. And I think as all the other panelists have said, you know, we, you know, trying to get the parents to see education as being an important thing for all the reasons, you know, socially, you know, academically, everything else, you know, the best place for the students is in school. And I think as Natalie said, it will be a snowball effect of, you know, they come in, they're successful, they're safe, and it will hopefully spin out. My hope personally is we can get more than year 10 in before the holiday. That would be my hope. Thank you, Will. Um, and a huge thank you to, to Will and Jenny and Marie and Natalie for sharing their thoughts and plans with us. And hopefully that's provided useful and interesting food for thought um, and food for debate um, as all the, the teachers and leaders who've been able to join us are themselves making their own plans for what those future terms will look like at their own schools. Um, recording of the panel will be available on the website soon um, as well as a summary and we really want to keep the conversation going so please use the hashtag, hashtag future terms panel. Um, and we've got three more panel events coming up on um, on the, the, the next few Thursdays. So, so tune in at four o'clock, register for those if you haven't already. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for attending um, and, and good luck with, with all the, the planning and the work that, that you're doing for your pupils at the moment. Thanks everyone. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Future Terms from Teach First. We'll be back soon with another event. To find out more and to attend, visit teachfirst.org.uk forward slash future terms.